Okay, I don't really know what I'm doing here, so I'm just going to talk. I started to write my book, I'd Rather Be Dead Than Dope Stick, um, over 10 years ago, and it was going to get published, Um, people were actually writing a screenplay, and... um, I met with a producer, and they wanted to make a movie out of it, but they didn't want me to have creative control, and basically they wanted to buy my story, so I said no. But it was good that I did, because um, very soon after that, I relapsed, (laughs) and... It was it was a long time coming. I had already been uh, on pain medication, opiates, and um, wow, you know, there's just so much to this. Um, I guess starting from the beginning would probably be better. Um, but I'm thinking I should just start reading my book and maybe just comment as I read, um, because I don't even know where to start. My life has just been crazy and turned upside down more than a few times and I wouldn't even know where to begin I've been clean now for a little over five years and um, off skid row from 2016 I'm so grateful Um, (coughs) excuse me and I just got over COVID uh, two weeks ago And I'll tell you, COVID is a cakewalk compared to kicking heroin. I'll tell you that. I will go through COVID 10 times more before I ever have to go through being dope sick again, ever. Anybody who is a heroin addict knows exactly what I'm talking about. It sucks. So... I'm just going to start reading. Um, This is what I wrote uh, after I got off Skid Row. Um, When I was on Skid Row, it was such an experience. (laughs) I'm just going to read. This is something that happened right before I ended up coming to a place where I realized that I was going to die out there on the street if I didn't get clean and sober. So here we go. It was a hot summer. I was cooking up a bag of dope when my friend, Antoine, ran up to my tent. And let me just say, that's a f- not his real name. I'm not using anybody's real name. 
in this. So, Lori, do you have any Narcan except my name? <laughs> I think Tina overdosed. I usually kept Narcan on me at all times, but I hadn't been to the needle exchange for a few weeks. Nah, I'm out. What's going on? We did a couple bags and I fell asleep. When I woke up, Tina was passed out in this weird position and I don't think she's breathing. Antoine's hands clenched and he lifted, shifted back and forth on his feet. Sorry, I should just tell this story instead of reading it. But um, I jumped up and started over to where Tina was. I had bought an extra tent a few months back and Antoine had been staying there. I enjoyed having him around. We became friends the first time we met right after I ended up homeless on Skid Row. He had brought Tina over the fourth day after she'd gotten out of jail. She had already overdosed three times in three days and today was number four. The sun was blasting hot and the top of the tarp was off. I could see Tina's tiny body before I entered it. She was lying on her back. She must have been sitting with each leg bent at the knee, one on each side of her when she nodded out and then her body fell straight back. She was still in that weird position and it didn't look good at all. At closer inspection, my heart sank. A dark, sick feeling came over me. Tina's face was gray. I sat down next to her to start CPR. I clasped my fingers together, put my hands over her chest, and pushed down hard. The sound that came out of her will stay with me for the rest of my life. A whoosh of air flew through her chest cavity and out of her mouth, her body completely limp. She sounded hollow. Seriously sounded hollow. It was... Ugh, I'll never forget that. Antoine, call 911. Now, I can't do this. We were always afraid of having the police show up whenever we made a 911 call. But ever since the Good Samaritan law came into effect, more addicts called 911 when a friend overdosed. When I had first gotten strung out on heroin almost 20 years before, addicts were too scared to call 911 when someone overdosed. I had heard of junkies, parentheses at best, dropping their friend off near the ER and taking off, or parentheses at worst, Junkies dumped in an alley or thrown in a dumpster left to die. The Good Samaritan Law protected people who called 911 even if they were with someone who had overdosed. I walked back to my tent as Antoine called 911 and I told my boyfriend at the time, Tina looks dead. I don't think she's going to make it. I sat down and heard Antoine on the speakerphone with the EMT. Count one, two, three, four, five, head back, hold her nose and deep 
breath in one deep breath two repeat chest compressions one two three four five keep doing that until the ambulance gets there you're doing good about 10 minutes later a fire truck and ambulance pulled up the emts dragged tina out of the tent onto the sidewalk and immediately began to work on her they gave her narcan a number of times hooked her up to the machines to i don't know what machines but um perform cpr they must have worked on her for about an hour before they put her in the ambulance and drove off, drove off sirens bear, sirens bear, blaring god i can't talk yeah this experience was pretty traumatic and it woke me up i i will never forget that experience um i'm so grateful because my back then boyfriend now husband but who we've been separated for like uh, over two years he is actually back on skid row um living in a tent and um well i won't get into that but um that experience i knew that if there was no way i would ever get off the street if i was still going to be strung out and um i didn't know how to get clean i just it was i was on methadone and heroin and um but after seeing my friend uh i'll never forget what she looked like and i knew that if i continued to use i would either end up dead or i would never be off the street so i um <clears throat> i told my boyfriend at the time i don't want to die out i don't, don't want to die out here we have to get clean and um so he actually he was surprised <laughs> um i won't share right now about exactly how we got clean but um because it was a process for him it was kind of instant but uh for me it it took me a minute um I can read maybe I'll read another chapter um chapter 1 <laughs> I was born in Los Angeles, California in the late 60s at Good Samaritan Hospital downtown Mom said that once she brought me home I cried for hours sometimes non-stop my pediatrician said I had colic My dad would take a ruler and hit me with it when I wouldn't stop crying. 
As I got older, I became very afraid of my father. Sometimes he'd be laughing and in a good mood, and other times he would come home from work furious for one reason or another. The good things I remember about my childhood was my favorite Frankenstein doll, my troll with blue hair, and my best friend, Rudy. He lived across the street, down the street. We watched Kikaida, Speed Racer, and Godzilla. We played with frogs, worms, Planet of the Apes, I had a fort, and dinosaurs, and we rode uh, bikes. One day, Ross and I were watching a line of working, working ants, excuse me, on my front porch. I wasn't afraid of ants, but I hated anything that had more than two legs. As we watched the ants march, I felt a tickling on the back of my arm. I swatted it away. A few minutes later, I felt it again. I swatted it again. My dad was sitting behind me. What's that on your arm? He pointed. I screamed, got up, shook my arms up and down. My dad broke into laughter. I ran into the house, upstairs to my room, humiliated. It wouldn't have been so bad if Rudy wasn't there. I was about 10 years old. My sister, Lena, eight. We sent. We spent the night at our parents' best friend's house. Their daughters were around the same age as Lena and I. The night after we got home, I sat in front of the television and my dad stood in the hallway. What did you do when you were over at Beth and Tammy's? Dad asked. My heart stopped. I know what you did, he said, hands on his hips. Lonnie, Lori, I changed my name on here because I, well, I thought I was going to have to use a pen name and I probably still might. I don't know. I don't even know if I'm going to publish this or not. I'm not trying to make money off of this, so... It's just something that I feel like I'm, I was supposed to do so um, to help other people. So, anyways, sorry. Okay, Lori, you're the oldest. You should have known better. He always said that, no matter what it was. I sat on the carpeted floor and five feet away from my dad. I started to scoot away. Lena sat a few feet away, not saying a word. Why is everything always my fault? I cried. Don't talk back to me. But I didn't know what was going to be on the TV when I turned it on. What did you see? He demanded. What was I supposed to say? It was soft porn. But back then, I didn't even know the name for what most of the stuff I saw on the, on the first cable channel was. I don't know. I said, what did you guys see? His bloodshot eyes seemed to pulse behind his glasses. 
As I sat trying to figure out what to say, my dad stomped to the closet. He flung the door open and pulled out a black and green bungee cord. I wanted to run, but I knew that would only make it worse. Terrified, I sobbed. Sex! We saw people having sex. I scrambled away from, scrambled away from him on my hands and knees. Get up, he screamed. I said, get up. He grabbed one of my arms and in one swoop grabbed me and pulled me to my feet. He swung at me with the bungee cord over and over, leaving large red welts on my legs and backside. I was smaller than most of my kids, thin and frail. It felt like the cord was breaking my skin, penetrating to my bones every time he swung at me. My body shook from sobbing so hard. Please, I'm so sorry, please. It was just a mistake. I didn't mean to, I cried, using one hand to try and block the blows while he held the other arm. I'd better not hear that you've watched that crap ever again. I nodded my head. I promise, I promise, I'm sorry. He sent me upstairs to my room and I limped all the way to up the stairway, down the hall to my bedroom. Sobbing, I climbed into bed. I lay there shaking, trying to catch my breath. Make sure you take a bath, he yelled. Did you hear me? Answer me when I talk to you. I heard you. I jumped up and started the bath water. I knew watching sex on TV was quote-unquote bad, but I saw stacks of penthouse and Playboy magazines every time I went to my grandparents' house, and I was told pictures of naked women was art. So what was sex? The steam fogged the shower door glass. It was too hot to immerse my entire body because of the red marks, which had already turned into large wooden, wooden, sorry, swollen welts. I was used to being at the end of my dad's rage and I was terrified of him. There were too many incidences where my father went off on me. So I'm only sharing one. My life passed away, my life. My dad passed away last year and I love him and miss him so much. I was able to see God transform his life. And when he passed away, he was a completely different man than he was when I was a child completely um yeah i'm so grateful for my dad and i i had a very difficult time choosing what to write about my dad what situation what instance of him uh going off on me abusing me because i don't want him to sound like a monster Um, when I was in a mental hospital as a teenager, the caseworker 
I was telling her, you know, some of the things he did, because when you're growing up, it's kind of like, you know, um, you think that everybody's debt kicks, you know, your kid's butt, (laughs) whatever, and I just assumed that, you know, um, whenever you did anything wrong, every kid got their butt kicked, you know, and so I would, I was telling the, the caseworker some of the things that my dad did to me, and she was like, oh my gosh, you need to file a child abuse report, you know, and I didn't want to do that, but, um, but anyway, yeah, um, the last few years of my life, or my dad's life, uh, my dad and I were, like, best friends, I, I really miss him, um, we were able to resolve a lot of things, and, and I'll tell more about that later, but, um, I'm so grateful, because there was some closure, and I got to tell him, you know, how much he hurt me when I was a child, and, and that was, that really meant a lot to me, um, so, um, okay, well, I guess I can just read a little bit more here. Once I graduated from junior high and summer was almost over, my mom announced that she and my dad decided to send me to Catholic school. It'll be good for you. But none of my friends are going to Catholic school, I whined. It's a privilege to go to Catholic school, she said, nodding her head. I ran upstairs to my room and threw myself on the bed, cursing. When I was in junior high school, I got all A's and B's here and there, a few, but it was never enough, no matter how good I did. I'd get all A's and one B. Why did you get a B? dad or mom would ask. I clean all five bedrooms of the very large two-story house we lived in. You missed a bedroom, one of them would say, or you forgot to vacuum the study. I hated having to clean a huge house, but what I hated even more was when kids from school came over and it got around school how large our house was and other kids began calling me names like spoiled or rich bitch my dad made it worse being infatuated by classic cars and by buying and or trading them often every time he dropped me off at school in a different car I'd want to crawl and hide The day mom sent me to the high school to take the entrance exam, I purposely planned to fail. Instead, I quickly made friends with a cute blonde while we stood in line to take the exam. After we both took the exam, she and I took a tour of the school and my mom came along. The hallways were dark and smelled of fresh paint. The floors were cold concrete, and the lockers were painted a pasty yellow color, as well as the classroom doors. As we walked down the hallway, I saw a really cute guy with a flock of 
seagulls <laughs> haircut leaned up against the lockers next to one of the classrooms. Another guy had spiked hair and wore Doc Martin boots. He walked by and gave us a quick once-over and nodded to acknowledge us. Maybe school wouldn't be so bad. A week later, my mom announced I had passed the entrance exam. I was sad because I would miss my friends, but had already convinced myself that I'd make myself like the school. I stopped hanging out with a blonde friend I met at orientation after the first week of school. Instead, I hung out with the surfers, punk rockers, and partiers. In junior high, many of the kids I hung around with drank alcohol, smoked cigarettes, whenever we went to parties. I had no desire to do either. I had more fun being a spectator until I went to Catholic school where there was a rule for everything. Uh, You can't wear your skirt more than six inches above your knees. You can't have punk rock type haircuts. You can't wear more than one earring in each ear. I wondered... Did God really care about all that stuff? And why did all of these new rules make me feel like breaking every one of them? (laughs) Rebel. At Mass, we would sit, kneel, stand. Kneel, sit, stand. At confession, I'd tell the priest whatever I had done wrong and what and wondered why I had to talk to a priest instead of God. Why were priests more special than other people? Brother Ben, who taught religion class, spoke with a lisp and his breath smelled like rotten milk. He wore a long brown robe with a cord around his wrist and swung it around in circular motion and sashayed, walking up and down each row of chairs. Sometimes he'd put one hand on one of the male students' heads, mess up his hair with one hand, still swinging his white cord with the other. He never messed with me or my girlfriend's hair. Months after I started my freshman year, I met Mandy when we were trying out for the track team. Her brother and sister both graduated from the Catholic school, and Mandy mostly hung out with older students. She played a number of sports, had ice blue eyes, naturally curly eyelashes, and she had a golden tan from being outside so much. Very pretty. We were at my house one afternoon doing our homework together in my room one day. I sat on the bed while Mandy worked at my desk, fidgeting with a pencil in her hand. Hey, want to try something that'll make you feel really good? She asked, somewhat hesitatingly. Try what? Mandy put her finger to her mouth. Wait till I close the door. She got up, tiptoed to the door, and quietly shut it. Then she took out a small envelope. 
It's called a bindle, she said. Carefully, Mandy opened it up with her fingers and tapped out a small pile of white powder onto a compact mirror she had pulled out of her purse. It's cocaine, she whispered. Since I became a freshman, I smoked clove cigarettes, drank alcohol, and smoked pot for the first time. But I hadn't heard of cocaine before. Mandy took out a a razor blade and chopped up any tiny chunks in the sparkly white powder and separated it into four small lines, each about two inches long. Then she pulled out a dollar bill out of her wallet and rolled it up into a straw. She placed the compact on my nightstand, pulled her hair away from her face, bent over and stuck the bill up against her nose. I watched the line disappear up the dollar bill like, (laughs) like in a dirt devil commercial. She switched nostrils. Another white line of powder disappeared. Mandy handed me the dollar bill, one hand holding her nostrils together, her hand her head thrown back. I felt lightheaded the, by the time I had finished snorting the second line. A clear lightheadedness, as if I were floating on clouds. In the 80s, cocaine was really good. My coke dealer was a young Hispanic guy who sat behind me in religion class. I began snorting cocaine every day, first thing I got up in the morning, at home, and at school. If I didn't have any, I could usually get some from Mandy. A quarter gram of coke cost 20 bucks, and I could almost always find $5, $10, $20 bills somewhere laying around in my parents' bedroom on top of the dresser, in their dressers, on the nightstand. If they missed any of the money I took, they never mentioned it. When I was in high school, my parents warned me, If you smoke cigarettes, the next thing you know, you'll be drinking alcohol. Before you know it, you'll be smoking marijuana. I laughed at them, thinking they didn't know what they were talking about. I thought I was smart enough not to fall into peer pressure. I was smart enough to dabble in drinking and smoking weed. I would never become an addict. The movie Breakdancing was released. Kids were bussed in from the inner city and they knew how to breakdance. They would dance in the school hallway during recess and most were Filipino, Samoan, Mexican, or black. In junior high, kids were mostly Caucasian, and I never felt as if I fit in anywhere. In the eighth grade, I had a crush on one of the quote-unquote popular guys. He was a bit of a rebel and was always getting into trouble. He must have heard I had a crush on him because one day he told me straight out, I like you, but I could never go study with you because you aren't white. I was both shocked and crushed. Before then, I had never considered people different because of their race. Only smart, stupid, pretty, ugly, fat, skinny, 
And that was only because of the way the kids and I would talk at school. The one and maybe only thing I liked about Catholic school was that it was interracial. I first saw Richard down at the pier where he and a bunch of his friends used to break dance. I was 15 and he was 19. The boys would battle against another person from an opposing crew. Each person challenged their breakdancing skills up against one another and the crowd determined which crew was the best by whoever got the most applause. Dressed in matching sweatsuits, the guys would perform moves like the flare, a move that involved swinging the legs around in a circular motion while balancing on the hands, head spins, or windmills. A dancer continuously rolled his torso in a circular path on the floor, across the upper chest, shoulders, back, while twirling his legs in a V-shape through the air. One of the guys from a crew would have a boombox and hip-hop music filled the air. I began going to breakdancing battles and almost every battle ended up in a fight. I watched Richard dance. He stared intently while he challenged somebody from another crew and I found out from his friends that he had been in prison before. For some reason, I found that attractive. Richard approached me and asked for my phone number a few nights after we met. Unless he was dancing or fighting, he was a, he was soft-spoken and almost timid. <coughs> Excuse me. I was happy to give him my number, and soon after, he began picking me up from school, bringing me home. We went to the beach, smoked a joint, and made out in his car. Smoking pot made me giggly and happy. But when he tried to fill me up or began to go up my, up my skirt uniform, I'd push his hands away. I don't remember my health teacher at Catholic school telling us anything about sex except birth control and how we could abort a fetus or embryo at up to three months. And all my parents ever told me about sex was not to have it which was enough because it scared me anyway. We went to parties in neighborhoods where we always ended up yelling, cussing someone out, throwing bottles, and are fighting. Richard met my parents one night when we were supposed to go to a football game. His hands were stuffed into his blue jean pockets that were creased to the side, rolled up, and then tucked in at the bottom. He shifted back and forth, side to side, staring at his feet. Later, my mom said she didn't like the way he wouldn't look she or my dad in the eye. When we left the house, a couple of Richard's friends had waited in the car, and we drove to a party instead of the game. When we parked, Richard lit up a blunt and passed it around. The joint we smoked this time smelled different, chemical-like. Richard and his friends smoked sherm, a cigarette or joint, dipped in PCP. I wasn't sure if I'd ever smoked PCP before. After we finished smoking, we all got out of the car. 
I stumbled to the ground and couldn't stand up. What's up? You okay? Let me help you. I leaned up against a nearby fence. Richard took my hand and guided me to the car. His friends left for the party. Get in the back seat. I grabbed onto the car seat and slumped into it. Richard got inside and sat next to me, pressing his mouth against mine. I didn't want to kiss him. He pushed me down, lying on top of me. I melted into the black leather seat as my head swam. I slurred instead of speaking, trying to find my voice. I wanted to scream, but nothing came out except a garbled objection. I started to float away. I watched in slow motion as he reached into the console and pulled out a condom. In the same motion, he pulled down my pants. Paralyzed, I tried to scream. No, please stop. My voice was weak. My words came out as a jumbled protest. My limbs each weighed a thousand pounds. My mind, thick mud. Come on, you know you want this, Richard smiled. I tried to push him away. No, please don't do this. The radio played careless whispers. Rigid and frozen, I wished that I could make him stop. I wanted to fight, but I couldn't move. I'm never gonna dance again. Guilty feet have got no rhythm. I listened to more of Wham while Richard broke me. I stared at the black ceiling of the car and the seat squeaked at each thrust. Tears rolling down both sides of my face, I looked out of the back window at the clear black sky and finally closed my eyes, hoping to go somewhere, anywhere else. I focused on listening to the music, singing to myself in my head. I'm never gonna dance again the way I danced with you. Richard climaxed and laid on top of me for a few minutes. I laid there silently crying, choking back the tears. Well, I better get you home, he sighed. He casually pulled up his pants and hopped into the driver's seat. I was dirty, bleeding. Did he make me start my period? I stared straight ahead and asked him if he'd take me to the store to get tampons. I was finally able to move, although my body still felt heavy. You're bleeding? Ha! I I popped your cherry, Richard giggled, covering his mouth with his hand. He drove me to the store, went inside, bought the tampons, and handed them to me. I took the box and held it tightly. Why don't you get in the front seat, he smiled. I got out of the car and slid into the front seat like an emotionless, mechanical robot. What's wrong with you? He asked. Nothing. I looked out the window. Big, wet tears slid down my cheeks. 
I didn't say a word during what seemed like a very long ride home. I stared out the window and Richard dropped me off. I'll call you tomorrow, he said casually. I nodded my head and walked up to the front door of my house, not looking back as Richard drove away. I went upstairs to my bedroom, got dressed, and curled up in my bed. Lying in the dark, I stared at the ceiling and cried myself to sleep. The next day, reality hit me. I wasn't a virgin anymore. I'd never be a virgin again, and nothing I did would ever change that. Richard called. I was quiet after I heard his voice. What's wrong? He asked. It took me a minute before I was able to muster up the courage to speak. What's wrong? What's wrong is what you did to me the other night. What did I do? I never want to talk to you again, I said and hung up the phone. I hated him. He took a part of me that wasn't his to take. Back then, the word rape never even crossed my mind because Richard was my boyfriend. Had I done something to deserve this? I shouldn't have smoked weed. I didn't know what I did to deserve what he did to me, but I vowed to never let it happen again. I guess I'll end there. Um, Yeah, that was my virginity being taken. (laughs) I was, I don't even remember if I was 15 or 16 um, or somewhere in the middle. I don't know. But um, yeah, I had started hanging out with uh, a lot of guys from the inner city who were gang members actually so um, they weren't really in a gang yet more like cliques they were you know dancing and stuff and what used to be break dancing and all it, it turned into gangs and people weren't really dancing anymore it was like fighting drive-by shootings and it just got worse and worse but um anyways I probably uh made a lot of typos (laughs) um or I don't know how good my grammar is um but and I don't even know like if I'm gonna still have this book published um I had a publisher before I had an agent before and then you know after I relapsed I was out on the street for like over three years on Skid Row and um and then when I got clean I I felt like hopeless I mean I was happy once I got clean, but I just felt, when I relapsed, I was so humiliated. I can't even tell you, like, I'm sure anybody who's an addict 
knows if you relapse, it's just, oh my gosh, it is so hard to come back and, you know, get clean and get, get your life back together um, after falling again. It's just really humiliating. But I needed that. Like, God needed to humble me because I was just so proud and full of myself. But, um, yeah, I think I'll end this here. And um, maybe I'll read some more tomorrow. Uh, As I'm reading, I'm seeing some typos. And (laughs) I'm very anal retentive and perfectionistic, but, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm pretty laid back though, and really my heart is just, if I could help anybody from even maybe parents, like, hearing my childhood and my teen years, of some of the things that led up to my addiction because nobody, nobody, you know, pops out of their mother's womb and says, I want to be a dope fiend when I grow up or I want to be a hooker, you know, or homeless. Nobody plans that for their life. And I was raised in a really nice home but it was very dysfunctional, and um, yeah, I, I just rebelled and just went from trying to be a really good kid because my parents were so uh, strict, and I really wanted to please my parents, but once I realized like I couldn't and once I went to Catholic school and they were so strict I was like screw this like I can't deal with this crap you know I mean just brought out all the rebellion in me and um so that was the beginning of just complete I I I don't know if I had continued to go to public school if things may have been different for my life, like, I probably still would have ended up using drugs. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but the fact that being at Catholic school and the guy who sat in front of me in religion class was a cocaine dealer. And I think he was from like Honduras or something. I can't remember. But, you know, it was just like, I just, the, I think it was also, you know, uh, trying to be cool and thinking like, you know, all these Catholic, you know, uh, goody two-shoes or whatever, like, are nerds, and so I'm going to rebel and I'm going to be cool and do drugs, and yeah, I think... I don't know, because I was hanging out with, like, the so-called popular group, and they were all using, and everything that my parents said about me, (laughs) about, you know, if you start smoking cigarettes, you're going to start drinking, and then you're going to smoke weed, and they were right. They were totally right, and yeah, for young people, you know, 
you, your parents are probably right. <laughs> like seriously, we think when we're young that we know better, but you know, uh, our parents they say things because they know things from their experiences and yeah uh, my parents were right but anyway god bless you all and have uh well it's evening here so um i hope you have a good night all right god bless